0: the incomparable number 231 january 2015
1: welcome back everybody to the incomparable i'm your host jason snell we're here tonight to convene another edition of our book club we uh i we we may need to just change the title to apocalypse book club because we do that an awful lot i blame lisa as you should lisa schmeiser hello we read more apocalyptic books Also out there, of course, it's book club. It wouldn't be a book club, angry people on Twitter point out, were it not for the (laughs) presence of Scott McNulty. Hello, Scott. Are you here? Is this officially a book club? It is a book club. Oh, hooray. Thank goodness. Well, now that we know that it's officially a book club, I'd like to introduce my other two guests. Monty Ashley also joins us. Hello, Monty. Hello, Jason. Remember electricity? Oh, good times. Remember podcasts? Oh. They were like a traveling theater (laughs) <laughs> but but it came to you over the 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 clouds. I can't even picture such a thing. I know. I'll draw you a comic book about it later. We're foreshadowing <laughs> what the book is. And David Lore
2: is also here. Hello David. Hi, I'm uh, calling in from John Syracuse's compound. Good because it's you know With our Lex's it's children safe there. Here. So All of Lex's, kids. Lex's children yeah. are here. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very safe. Are, yeah. safe.
3: are Syracuse's children there? Did they do a house swap? Oh no, Le-
1: Syracuse <laughs> is going to take his children to where it's safe. It's just Lex <laughs> that has they have to be rescued. But mm-hmm. I- I'll refer you to our episode about the the dog <laughs> <That's right>. stars <laughs> right. for that one. Um, this is this is about two books that are more or less about apocalypses. One is Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, and one is The Peripheral by William Gibson. Lisa's and my old pal, William mm-hmm. Gibson. And uh, we're also going to talk with bonus bonus material. Uh, for those who read it, I didn't, but that's fine, uh, about John Varley's slow apocalypse because Lisa felt that it would be uh, relevant to this discussion. And I take her at her word because I didn't read it. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's, let's start with uh, Station Eleven, which is... Um, Scott, you had you were the one I heard about this book from, and and then I saw it on somebody's best of the year list. So uh, you know you you really liked this one, and recommended it to the rest of us. So this is all your fault, right? I mean, uh, doing all you're doing. <laughs>
0: I is, think I is.
3: also pushed for it too. Hmm. Yeah,
1: because
0: apocalypses. It was uh, I think widely uh, acclaimed as a very good book yes. uh, of mm-hmm. last year. So it, it made many lists. Uh, and so I wouldn't be surprised if, if much like uh, calculus, both Lisa and I discovered it at the same time mm-hmm. uh, and uh, both uh, lauded and suggested it as a book we should read. Uh, and in fact, it was my favorite book that I read last year uh, with a second followed closely by the Bone Clocks uh, by our good friend uh, David Mitchell of the Cloud Atlas. Uh, the Cloud Atlas. Fame.
1: You know this mm-hmm. book that, that that those books must hit the right spot for you because this book reminded me of the Cloud Atlas a little bit. Mm. A little bit. I I enjoy uh, when
0: they interweave different uh, different periods and jump back and forth mm-hmm. and connect everything at the end. Uh Satisfyingly or not.
1: So now I have to ask you because we know that one of your uh, one of your charming traits is that you cannot you get book <laughs> amnesia and you can't remember what happened in books. Do you, would you like to talk a little bit about Station Eleven and what it's about and why you liked it to kick us off? Since since uh, I feel like uh, uh, Lisa will be able to join me in talking about the peripheral. I thought maybe I would go to you for Station Eleven to start. Do you have? Sure. Or, or would you like to punt? I'm giving you the option to say, I don't remember anything that happened. You talk about it. I'll catch up later.
0: I read this way back in November. So oh. <laughs> details yeah. are Man, hazy. Man,
1: that was like I, before Thanksgiving. That's crazy. It well, there was an
0: apocalypse. And then... <laughs> it, it's true. And uh, I will admit I was f- looking for uh, a synopsis online to refresh my memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could not find one. <laughs> no.
1: Which did not help. No, good, Goodreads has a little one, but there's none on Wikipedia. Uh, strangely, no.
0: It, <laughs> it was sad. Uh-huh. Uh, the gist of the story is that uh, I mean, super simplifying it, uh, there is uh, a big um, virus of some sort, which I forget the Georgian flu, it's very stand
1: like, right?
0: Uh, that yes, that that sweeps the the globe, uh, and we drop. We the story shifts between. Uh, pre uh, globe sweeping virus uh, post globe sweeping virus uh, and there's a comic book part in the middle there uh, sprinkled throughout um, so that's a super high level uh, overview and then all the characters kind of not all the characters but the main characters kind of uh, connect throughout the different time periods uh, at the end uh, and I will say a lot of a lot of scenes stood out in my mind. Um, but the overall plot, uh, as with many things, has evaporated.
1: <laughs> well, okay. So the, basically, the hmm. plot is that uh, you, you're following a, a couple different characters. Um, mostly, it is uh, Kirsten, who is a child actress, uh, in a in a production of king lear in toronto um at the moment that this uh, virus basically goes global and kills almost everybody um and we we see her as a child there and this famous uh, film actor dies on stage um dick sean like if anybody remembers the story of <laughs> comedian dick sean <laughs> mm-hmm. dying yes. on stage and um and then she is also, we see her later traveling post apocalypse um, in a company of musicians and actors who go from town to town performing uh, performing plays and playing music in the Midwest to the various villages that have sprung up post the post-apocalypse, at least the ones that aren't too creepy or violent. And uh, she's so she's a part of that that group. And we also um see various. Uh, stories about people, other people who connected with that actor, including the uh, the EMT who um, who jumped up on stage and tried to save his life when he died on stage, and we we meet uh, we see how the EMT's life goes after the apocalypse, and also how he was connected to people like the actor's ex wife and uh, ex wives and his son and that all is is kind of connected so we we see various things that stem from this moment where these people are together at this uh at the moment where the actor dies and then we see his life and his wife's lives and his child's life and the the, the life of this child actress who grows up post apocalypse and also the EMT and it's all kind of interconnected and uh and yeah, in the end, it's the end of the world because there aren't very many people around more than anything else. So it isn't a case where the infrastructure fails and then everybody dies. It's a case that everybody dies and then the infrastructure fails because theoretically it's just, you know, it's all too messed up for people to put back together, at least not yet. Sound, sound about right? Yes. All yes.
3: right. Did you mention the comic book that the actor's <laughs> oh. ex-wife? This is, yes. This is the most vital part of the story for me is – um. The actor, who is arguably the one thing everybody in this book has in common, the actor is a a serial husband, and his first ex-wife spends her time drawing a comic book series that she never quite finishes, but her husband or her ex-husband has a few copies made up. He gives a copy to his son, and he gives a copy to Kirsten when she's a small child, too, um, because he's using her as a a stand-in surrogate. And that comic book not only acts as a metaphor for the 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 identity crisis that humanity is having post extinction event it is also the thing that unravels the central mystery surrounding the the post apocalyptic uh, world's Principal antagonist that Kirsten and her troop run into.
1: Right, right. It's a uh, – and, and provides the name of the book because the, yes. the comic book is called Station 11. And it is about a, a scientist who lives on a space station and, and we an discovered – yes. yeah. yes. yeah.
3: well, <laughs> An undersea, an undersea station. station, I think. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's an undersea space
1: station, I think. It's on another and, planet. <laughs> it's and very there's strange. A
3: vi- and there's a violent um, conflict between people who want to stay safe in the in the station and people who are longing for life above the surface – and um, the metaphor for for life in and out of the bubble is pretty effect is pretty affecting, because another one of the characters in the story is the um, dead actor's best friend slash business manager who ends up starting who ends up inadvertently colonizing an airport with others with other yes. survivors and curating a museum of the world that passed. I
1: could fire off a spoiler horn here, but really, it's book club. We're going to talk about what's in the book. If you don't want to know what's in the book, don't listen until you. Read Until board. you've
3: read, yeah, and um, I, I have to admit, I really love the airport sequences. Oh my God, did mm. I love the airport sequences? <laughs>
1: so, so I, I, one of the things that fascinates me, as with all these books, is how society unravels and the nature mm-hmm. of how it's portrayed. Um, and I, I want to talk about that, and then that also ties into the Gibson um, Scott. Uh, since you liked this book so much, I, and I know we've got some differing opinions. <laughs> On, on the panel, I'm just you know there. If you wonder why Monty and David are crouching in the weeds, silently sneaking up behind you, that may be why. <laughs> crouching in shame, <laughs> I couldn't find my chair.
3: The important thing is that Scott draws the fire. I have my
1: crossbow out? Are you kidding me? They're they're low they're low lying weeds. You have to stay below the the. Um, it's good for my hamstrings. Before yeah, you got stretch out. Uh, before <laughs> we get there, though, uh, Scott, why don't you tell us uh, if you've got uh, more about why this book uh, resonated with you and why you thought it was one of your favorites or your favorite from 2014. So I think
0: that a lot of books that deal with the apocalypse tend to turn into apocalypse porn, where it's all talking about, you know, the details of how the apocalypse happened and... You know, detailed planning, which is exactly what Slow Apocalypse is. Uh, yes, we, we I want get to talk to it. about that
3: with you. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so <laughs> it's 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 a stark contrast, and I see why Lisa, why you recommended it because it's a stark contrast to contrast to Station Eleven, which is basically using the apocalypse as a setting and kind of a plot device to start spinning these characters off. Uh, and it doesn't really concern itself with you know what's happening with the apocalypse or uh, why uh, you know this this disease is is rampaging throughout the world. It just has happened and let's move on, uh, which I find refreshing because uh, I think the, the most the boring parts of the apocalypse stories to me are you know the mechanics of the apocalypse. I'm more interested in how people react and And the relationships and the characters that are driven through it, uh which I know is not what uh, you know some people really like the the apocalypse mechanics, and that's fine. uh I would suggest reading Slow Apocalypse because boy, will you get your full of apocalypse mechanics uh mm-hmm. through that book uh- and if you're in Los Angeles, it will give you a detailed map of, of what how to, to do get out. <laughs> yes, if there's any kind of and I mean. You could draw a map based on he he goes into uh, streets and and where cul-de-sacs. to go yes
1: it's it's uh, impressive amount
0: of which detail.
3: stores are most likely to be looted first yes <laughs> and
1: this does not well in fact there's a uh I was going to say the book has amnesia about what happens post-apocalypse, but actually the main character has amnesia about mm-hmm. yeah. what happens post-apocalypse. She, she loses a year. We don't see the aftermath. Really. I feel like that
3: makes it worse because, because to, to imagine that a kid's on the road for a year and has blanked everything out, like – and, there are th- and the, she mentions there are things that trigger her, like certain sites of m- meat cooking or things like that. And between not knowing what happens and having that vague trigger about watching charred bone over a fire – Frankly, anything that your imagination comes up with is going to be horrific.
4: Well, we don't see her aftermath, but we right. do see the airport aftermath. We do. Well, I was going to. Yes. I was going to
1: say the the one place where you see uh, spot by spot what happens after the apocalypse is in the airport. Everything else mm-hmm. is sort of like we're on the precipice of the apocalypse, and then now we're dealing with life after the apocalypse. But the airport, you're right, steps which we get to very late in the game. Uh, does step through sort of so you're in an airport and the world ends. What do you do? What happens then? Just in case,
3: it's like the place to be. Um, that was like, that was my takeaway. It's um, apparently
1: awesome at the airport. Yes, go to the airport.
3: Well, it, what was interesting was how quickly the the, the one de- the two details that stuck with me on the first read through because I read this book twice. The first time I read it linearly front to back and then the second time i actually went through back in my kindle and picked it out character by character to see how their stories hung together as as just a series of short interlocked stories and the two details that stood out the first time in the airport sequence were that poor girl who runs out of her um her 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 oh
0: her anti-depression yeah yeah her Mm -hmm.
3: whatever she's taking and basically walks into the woods to go kill herself um and and then the second thing that stuck with me was when they they took like a quick hard line on sexual assault and kicked that guy out of the airport and gave him a rifle and said, good luck. Don't ever come back here. Right. And, um, I think the reason I was impressed with that was because that's kind of contrary to the ethos of a lot of, uh, you know, an apocalypse porn is a great way of putting it because a lot of these authors seem to be, seem to really relish the idea that yes, women will go back to being chattel. They'll be traded like currency. And here you had a bunch of people saying, look, you know, we're, we're living in a horrific time. There's no reason for us to have to put, for us to have to put up with that, and so both the, the the horrible disintegration and and the very real human cost of people who are going to lose their lives because they ran out of medication that was just something that that really stuck with me, as did them by consensus setting up and enforcing rule of law and and turning their aer- airport into an outpost. I loved both of those details, and she included them.
0: And I thought one of one of the scenes that sticks with me the most is in the airport. Uh, a plane lands shortly after oh, the outbreak, and they
3: won't let anybody and they won't off. Let, yes, they just and let that, them all die in there.
1: Well, the people the people on the plane don't get mm-hmm. off, right? It's, right. Yeah. Right. The, it's the, not the that anyone went and out stuff. To stop like them. we can't, we uh, can't. You know, we're not going to contaminate where we've landed. Yeah. 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 I, there, there are lots of moments. I mean, like Scott said, there are lots of moments that 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 stick with me. I I, um, I enjoy the. I enjoy the connections between the characters. I did mm-hmm. again as somebody who who watched Lost. I I, I don't know how realistic it is that there would be this many coincidental. <laughs> I mean, really, because by the end you are like, mm. oh, the law of economy of characters is in full effect. Everybody who we know <laughs> is important <laughs> to the story. All they, they, they all yeah. interlock together, and I I did roll my I, I enjoyed the whole book. I really enjoyed this <laughs> book, but I did roll my eyes at that. I was like, oh, well, of course, it has to be this character uh, because there is no one else for it to be. So it. So might must <laughs> be them, and yet i did I did enjoy it. It, it despite that I enjoyed the um i we talk about soft and hard apocalypses on the show sometimes and and I felt like I felt like the this was a softer apocalypse I feel like the airport was really a soft landing it's like we made it work it's okay.
3: We found venison. There's a
1: chilies here. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 that, that actually was pretty funny, right? That there's the idea is there's so few people here. It's like the road earlier on when there's still stuff in the mm-hmm. houses. Uh, but I, I did like that you you have those moments where they go from town to town and, and sort of like in the last uh, the last policeman. Um, mm-hmm. There are places that are better and there are places that are worse. But it's not the completely. Um, negative view that everything is going to just disintegrate into nothing. It's more like people that the Mm. survivors do sort of band together and some places are bad, but a lot of places are perfectly good. And that, that the traveling musicians and actors, this idea that this is all the culture that's left going from place to place. I found that charming and uh, I I enjoyed that because I, I, I didn't, I don't think I had an appetite for a, you know, completely brutal apocalypse. And while there are some threats and there's a bad, you know, there's a bad cult, kind of leader who kills people it, it uh i liked the optimism of the fact that uh yeah sure the world will end but we'll, we will still be doing some shakespeare and playing some playing some music and uh, quoting star trek and reading comic books scott by the way they're quoting star trek voyager i want to point that out but it's seven of nine so all right
3: the thing with the new world the two tu- the tuba had said once is that it's just horrifically short on elegance And I like that you basically have a bunch of people who are dedicated to art and elegance because that is their way of, uh, you know, asserting their humanity. Also, um, I like, and this sounds ghoulish, I like this book because it kills off one of the narrators. Hmm. And it well be, oh, because yeah. okay so yeah. well cuz one of my complaints about apocalypse porn or the apocalypse genre is it's always those plucky few who somehow manage to survive either because you know Mother Abigail has plans for them or <laughs> John Varley has provided them with um, a, map. a handy friend who can weld together school buses or whatever
2: um <laughs> That's his true. only skill Yeah <laughs> I've been waiting for this to happen.
3: <laughs> but in this case the per- you, you know and again to, if, you're, if you're listening to this, you've probably read the book. Um, Miranda gets the flu and dies. Yeah. And um, the way they paint her, the, the way Mandel describes her death, it's just, it's weirdly beautiful. And I was glad that a narrator was actually up uh, because I felt like it gave me as a reader more of a stake. Because instead of being like, oh, these, these eight people I'm following are all mysteriously part of the 10% that lives. It was like, ooh, yeah, it is going to hit her. She flies a lot. Yeah. She was exposed all the time. And mm-hmm. then she dies. And, uh,
1: yeah, you you have that moment where you think, oh, she's gonna she's gonna swim out to the boats that are in the harbor because she mm. knows about ships, and yeah. they're gonna go across the ocean and they're gonna save everybody! Yay! And then, no, she's gonna no, lay she down and die <laughs> on the beach, though. Yeah, they
3: describe how she crawls out of her hotel room, and the the the, the hotel and the hotel is empty. There's just this guy who's laying in the corridor, and she just looks at him and hopes that it's enough that they have that moment of connection. She crawls out to a chaise lounge, and she looks at the container ships and. Um,
1: which was her 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 business and all and of that. and then she
3: yeah, and says too late to get to a, her to a ship herself now, but she smelled the thought there were people in this reeling world who were safe I like
1: i I like that i what I don't like is the fact that it uh, telegraphs that scene about a chapter earlier by saying that the last thing she thought of when she was out on the beach before she died was this, mm-hmm. and then yeah. later we see her do that. I'm like really you know yeah. that's important yeah. break it to me gently <laughs>
4: um I did like that I also liked that. In Defiance of All Expectations, Jeevan – is that his name?
3: hmm Yeah, Jeevan. Uh,
4: Jeevan does not meet up with everybody else after the apocalypse.
3: No, he ends up like in Virginia at an old <laughs> like, chain hotel. It's awesome. Oh, no, <laughs> the, right.
4: the prophet passes through and that's about it, right? Yeah, but I was pretty certain he was going to show up at the airport because yeah. everybody else is. But <laughs> yeah, no, he's fine. He's that's somewhere where else.
3: Go. Yeah. And I also like that it's really short on everybody's journeys. It's just like, okay, we've gotten through that. There's no point in obsessing. Yeah. And there's a point where somebody says, you know – Young people actually came through this a lot better because they had less to forget, so they adapted more easily. Whereas people who were in their 20s and 30s were, were acutely aware of what they've lost. And um, I like that they that she actually details these really sharp generational gaps between people who are fully adult when when the, the extinction event hit. And uh, people like Kirsten who are interested in it because it just seems so remote to her. Like she knows she was alive, but she has almost no memory of it.
1: Let's take a brief break for our sponsor this week. It's MailRoute. I've told you about MailRoute before, and I use MailRoute. Imagine a world without spam or viruses or bounced mail clogging your inbox. Imagine opening your email and seeing only legitimate mail that you want and need to receive. MailRoute can make this dream a reality. Perhaps the apocalypse is really lots of junk mail. Well, you can solve the apocalypse, by using MailRoute. So here's how MailRoute works. Um, I've got my mail client on my Mac and on all my phones and iPads and stuff. And then I've got my mail server. What you do is you configure your mail so that Before it gets to your mail server, it goes to MailRoute. And MailRoute will take all your inbound mail for, if you've got your own domain, like I do, all the users in your domain. It'll scan it. They'll use their intelligence to weed out what's bad mail. And they don't deliver that. So the stuff that gets to your server and then gets to your apps is the good stuff. And I've been amazingly impressed at how good a job they do. Most of the junk is gone. There's very little junk that I see anymore. And they tend not to filter out good messages. once in a while I see a message in my little daily digest that MailRoute sends me that's a valid message, but it happens maybe once a month. Most of the time it's Hundred percent effective, and when there is a false positive, I click one link in that little digest, and the, the the sender's automatically whitelisted. The mail is automatically delivered. Couldn't be easier. You don't have to set up any hardware or software. MailRoute does that all for you. If you're an e- email administrator or an IT professional, they built tools with you in mind. There's an API. They support LDAP and Active Directory, TLS, mailbagging, outbound relay, everything you'd want. Big universities and enterprises use it, and individuals can use it too. So start a risk free trial. With no credit card necessary, just sign up. You change your MX records on your server, so you've got to be technical enough to understand about mail servers, but your mailbox and hardware will be completely protected. It's simple. It's effective. There's no reason not to try it. All listeners to The Incomparable will receive 10% off for the lifetime of your account. So go to MailRoute.net slash Snell now to receive that deal. MailRoute.net slash Snell. And thank you to MailRoute for sponsoring The Incomparable and filtering out all my spam monty yes oh yeah here we go it's gonna <laughs> here
3: comes the debate We're all yeah publishing.
1: no I, I i think i i mean i can i can see lots of issues that people might have with this book i just i i went with it and i enjoyed it monty what what are your what are your thoughts i you seem to you seem to be in in a more negative place about this book um, i let thought, us have it <laughs> i thought this book
4: was incredibly lazy <laughs> it felt like the author Wanted to tell a story about before and after the apocalypse, so took a generic apocalypse event off the shelf from the stand, and, and took a generic post-apocalyptic <laughs> setting off the shelf, and made no attempt
1: whatsoever to connect them in any way other than the airport. Right? I mean, the disconnection. Otherwise, I mean, like that's that amnesia, right? It's the amnesia allows you to go from point A to point B without having to actually connect. It does
4: them. not.
1: i believe it did because this book exists i'm not judging it i'm not saying it's good but that's what that's the trick here
4: right here's the thing in the airport people immediately gave up on humanity Mm -hmm. there's no attempt to do anything they said oh well everybody's dead i guess we're back to making tents out of branches we found in the forest (laughs) people are thrown all the way back not to the middle ages but to the stone age Mm -hmm. by this People are suddenly unable to build anything or make anything.
1: I, I did question the idea that, that even if 99% of people died, I do question the idea that we, that nobody anywhere would be able to do anything involving technology. I, I kept asking myself, because they talk about electricity, and, and I, kept, I kept asking myself, what about all the solar panels? <laughs>
3: <I> mean, <laughs> hello? So, so here's my counter. Do you remember in Why the Last Man? Do you guys, did you guys all read that right, or many of you read the comic series Why the, Why the Last Man? And they actually have a section I forget which trade it's in where where um one of the characters says, well, the reason the world is just such a hot mess right now is because there were vast industries that were pre- that were predominantly male, and so there was a lack of institutional knowledge and things like that. And what I'm thinking is in order for this not in order for people to get the lights back up and running or to keep the sanita- sanitation systems going or what have to ha- you do have to have a critical mass of people who either have that knowledge or can pass that knowledge along. And when people are busy dying from the flu, if you're going to sit tight, you're not going to be like, no, no, you can't go. You're a sanitation engineer. You have to pass on the secrets of the valves. Right, but, so, but
1: 15, 20 years later, presumably there's been some collection in these towns of people who know things. and And like I said, household rooftop solar panels are not that hard. I'm not uh, even
4: complaining yet about the
1: electricity. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. I feel like the... The electricity, the electricity feels to me like uh, she doesn't want to deal with it because she's got a beautiful image that she wants to have at the very end of the book. <laughs> and, where it's like, the and, and you can't do
4: that. Yeah. She's got a beautiful image and can't be bothered to explain it at all. And that's lazy storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> no,
3: I think that once you watch an entire plane load of people die, like on purpose, you're kind of like, oh, wow, this is, this is bad news. And, and I think that if you were to watch that, that probably puts the whammy on you.
4: There's a moment in the airport when the uh, museum of the past is being, like, it's over time, it's filling out. And their description says, there were a number of impractical shoes, stilettos mostly, beautiful and strange. Because in the author's head were post-apocalypse, were past the time when people wear impractical shoes. Think about in real life, How long ago it was that nobody cared about fashion. So we're not only back to before electricity, we're back thousands (laughs) of years to being cavemen. And humanity just gave up completely. I don't buy that.
3: I I saw the shoe thing as a commentary on a pedestrian culture versus one where you had the luxury of of being carried places. You know, you're not going to wear stilettos when you're walking 10, 15 miles a day.
4: People were in a pedestrian culture- Long after fancy shoes were invented.
3: Poor people remember that for a long time, um, like I'm thinking back to when they had those huge, crazy platforms in Italy where rich people would literally be strapped into their street shoes and then strapped back out again. And they had servants to carry them around or to help them walk from point A to point B so their fancy shoes didn't get ruined
1: you just i think what monty may be saying here correct me if i'm wrong monty is you know yeah you need your good shoes for when you're out hunting the venison right but then you're in the you're in the carpeted airport who wouldn't uh, wear some nice shoes from time to time? I cannot <laughs> believe we're having this conversation. Monty, do you have more thoughts about this? Because I, 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 I do think this is an issue. I think this is a book that does not. I enjoyed it a lot, and I thought it was kind of beautiful. I I agree that if you if you start to pick the at the uh, the premise, you find that it doesn't really hold up to any scrutiny.
0: It doesn't really care about the the specifics of the apocalypse, which I, I I agree, could drive a certain type of reader crazy. Among the things
4: that suggest that this author has put very little thought into the setting in which much of the story is based is the issue of books and comic books and just reading in general. As you may remember, in the Museum of the Future, uh, sorry, the Museum of Human History, whatever it's called. The Stiletto Museum, <laughs> we'll call it. Of course, Why not? It was possible to sit and read the final newspapers, 15 years old, turning brittle pages in gloves that Clark had sewn together somehow. First of all, newspapers do not go brittle after 15 years, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? I know that because I have newspapers that are much older than that. take like 100 years, yeah. Mm -hmm. Second, this book has no idea how many books and comic books there are in the world. It's confusing to me just on a basic level that they keep talking about how Whenever anyone goes into a house, they look for books and they look for comic books and they look for magazines and they never find any of them.
2: They, they find gossip magazines. That's it. Yeah. There's
4: thousands of them in the building I'm in. It, it does feel a little <laughs> bit like a
2: pastiche of,
1: uh, or or a, a a medley of various apocalypse scenarios that isn't particularly well thought out. So this is this is the point about this, which is, I, I at several points, Monty. So I'm on your side about this, even though I liked it. I'm on your side about this part. I, at several points, I thought to myself, I don't know if this book knows what apocalypse it's talking about, because at, there were moments where I read it like you know, this is this was the flu. It doesn't eat books. And yeah. there were not, like, fires that d- consumed all buildings everywhere, right? It just doesn't
3: seem right. I think she's got a little bit of a material culture fetish in the same way that William Gibson does. And I, I kind of want to circle back to that with the peripheral later. But when, when she's talking about... Objects and the imagined social meaning they must have had, or the per- imagined past meaning. It seems like she's really caught up in this very romantic vision of of people sitting around wistfully, thinking that things were better in the past. And um, if the last movie of the Coronetto trilogy, World's End, taught us anything, it's that. People just kind of roll with it, and there's always going to be people who are actually happy things are the way they are, and we almost never ran into that here. Instead, it's a lot of people who are just like, "Ooh, gossip magazines," and and you know they're they're cheerfully raiding people's houses. And, and I, I did like getting that. Super are, excited about that. I
1: like that there are happy towns because there yeah. are other oh, yeah. there are other stories like The Walking Dead or something like that where it's like, nope, everybody's miserable or dead.
3: That's why I can't read The Walking Dead or
4: The Road. Yeah. Yeah. While reading this book, that's how I was thinking. The basic thesis of The Walking Dead is that civilization is impossible. Yes. Yeah. Like, you can't get more than six people together on The Walking Dead before somebody goes crazy and starts shooting everyone else. Or starts hmm.
3: eating somebody else. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah.
1: But, yeah. So, I like, th- I like that, but I, I, but I don't where, – where, where it strained my credulity was, uh, okay, there are happy towns. That's good. But the happy towns are all kind of like um, gentleman farmer's from you know mm. from 500 years ago or something like that they're not like well we put things and again i think part of this is that she wants to end with this moment where they see lights from a far off town and think oh my god civilization is returning but you know it seems it, yeah it made me question that it's like really it was the flu i know a lot of people died but you got lots of stuff laying around you can probably figure it out in 15 years we were able to create electricity and start wiring our house's
4: before this, like mm. when there weren't wires everywhere, I feel like it could be done. She does mention before that final scene, one guy who had hooked his laptop up to his laptop up to a stationary bicycle. Yeah. And had got just enough power. And he was looking for the Internet, which is a stupid <laughs> thing which to Which is say. a dumb thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. And he could
1: only do it when he pedaled because batteries no longer exist, yeah. apparently. But yeah. that, that's fine. I don't care that much about it except for scoring a cheap point.
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I had the but, same well, thought. Well, that was my come first on, thought. Was, who hasn't seen Gilligan furiously mm. peddling <laughs> the bamboo bicycle to power yeah. the radio? If they can do it, come on. Yeah. If if you just want like
4: illumination can do that
1: well and the yeah. radio is a good point too where it's like you could get people you know to to communicate there's this there is this feeling like technology has just vanished and it, i just well weirdly enough you could go to a camping sub- outdoor
4: supply store right now and get two-way radios that you crank yeah
2: right i'm not sure maybe mm-hmm. those stop working after a while but there are lots of them and not that many people yeah i mean my first my first place in an apocalypse go to bass pro shops
1: there you go yeah I, so, David, um, you haven't said a lot, and I wanted to ask you about the 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 actors and uh, and play parts of this, since that's yeah. something that's near and dear to your
2: heart. Do you have any thoughts about that uh, that part of this story? Well, you know, and and listening to you guys talking, I'm you know I'm kind of in between you and Monty. I think that's a good place to be, sort of in Oregon. <laughs> yeah, Oregon. In in the end. I, I think it drove me nuts, although there's a lot of things I really loved about it. It's it's one of those things where I really, really loved it until I hated it. And uh, I didn't really hate it. But um, I did love the idea that here are these people who go around keeping the art alive and keeping, you know, we're we're going to play music and we're going to play Shakespeare. And I even liked that there there was one character who didn't like Shakespeare and yeah. kept her mouth shut about it because, well, you know. It's something, right? We're we're still bringing art, even if it's not the art I like, right? And and so the idea that this is something that should survive in a post-apocalyptic world that was that was a nice idea. I the um yeah yeah the I mean there so much of it was I mean the language was really poetic. I loved a lot of the imagery. I loved a lot of the thought that went into the things that she was describing, and I kept waiting for some kind of logic to kick in, right? I hated all the coincidences. It was it was too much coincidence, you know. Yeah, I was fine with the coincidences. You know, I it's well, it's like I, I didn't need the EMT to have been a former paparazzi who also interviewed everyone. It's like that was felt like
3: the most Just, extraneous part of yeah, the book for me. Yeah. I, they really could have sliced his entire plot line out and you would not have missed anything.
1: Yeah. yeah, he could. He could have died on the road out of
2: town and it would have been OK. Yeah. Well, even there. I mean, I liked I liked his actual story. I mean, I liked the, you know, holding up with the brother and trying to be less shallow. But. I didn't need him to have any more connection with Arthur than the fact that he tried to save his life. Yeah, f- everything else was extraneous. It was like, what was the point of that? Oh, look, everybody's connected. No, no, surprise us with connections. <laughs> Good Lord, you know. Um, and so I, I liked that he had nothing to do with anything by the end, but then why did he have so much to do with everything in the beginning? It's like, ah, it just... Everything about the plot frustrated me, and I didn't I didn't mind not explaining things. I didn't mind, you know, oops, apocalypse, let's tell the story. I like that, you know, that it just sort of says, we're going to set it here, and here are things that are going to happen, right? But then, you know, and I'm reading, and I'm reading, and I'm reading, and I'm going, we're running out of pages. What's, what's, oh, 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 here's an exciting thing with the prophet yeah. guy, and then, oh, done, and then we're still running out of pages, and oh, it just <laughs> stopped. Son of a you yeah, know. It
1: does. It does end awfully abruptly, and the pacing yeah. seems kind of strange. I thought the prophet was going to be a big villain, like he's going to carry the plot for that last half of the book.
3: Well, I, I thought he'd do something. Kind got
1: dealt with, really, in an
4: offhand manner.
1: Yeah. yeah, we just hide in the woods, and then there's a little bit of a thing, and then I, I stab him. And uh, actually, I thought, the, I,
3: I thought that the, I thought that, I thought that was really kind of powerful because you look at how the Station Eleven book managed to save one person's life because. Um, Kirsten uses it basically as 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 almost an internal Bible and a lifeline, and it does save her life at the end of the book. But it it warped the prophet beyond imagination from the time he was a little boy.
2: Right, I loved that. I loved that detail. I just wanted more basis for it. I wanted more.
3: It it seems a little bit like that guy in your MFA class who's like, "See, art is both cutting and redemptive." But I yeah. did like how I did like how there was that that one small moment where you know it is literally where there's a little bit of tragedy because those two people are literally the only people, the two people in the world who can have that conversation. And they finally found the other person they can have that conversation with about this unfinished story from 20 years ago. And it has to end like it ends. And then it loops back around to Miranda, who as she's dying hallucinates the sunset into the setting of station 11 and basically dies while she's cycling through a hallucination of the, of, of, of station 11 itself. So there's it's, you know, for one moment, you're kind of caught up in this big, oh, my God, death and connection. And really, it's all transcendent. And then you're like, oh, wait, they're, now they're in the museum.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I loved all the detail around Station Eleven itself. And I loved the connections. And I loved Clark at the end, realizing yeah, yeah. that that dinner party, right, that that's in the comic. and And going back to not liking Shakespeare, I liked the fact that Arthur, who is in a Shakespeare play, is... Uh, saying, well, I sent the one comic to my son and here you have the other one because I really don't get comics and I don't like comics. But Miranda gave them to me anyway, so here. And it was it was just this really nice thing of, you know, um, people who get certain kinds of art and not others. And, and it's okay that some art is not, you know, everybody's art, right? That you can like different things. And I, I thought that was a really nice thread throughout. But yeah, it, I mean... The 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 thing that struck me as I was reading it was I would really love to adapt this into something, but I would want to you know give it more of a plot. I would want more character. Yeah. You know, I you know let them bump into each other more in more interesting ways. I mean, it just it felt like really really interesting and poetic revolution fan fiction.
1: So I'm gonna say I'm gonna say another another thing. I, I mentioned that I feel like the the technology is suppressed in part to get an image at the end of that uh, that town far away that has lights. I, I feel like that's also true. I think the uh, some of the important plot points at the latter part of the book are suppressed for a long time because uh, the the writer wants a surprise about yes. the identity of the prophet, yeah. which, like I said, there's the law of economy of characters. So it's not <laughs> that wasn't surprising at all. No, not remotely. No. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, that's why I, I in looking back on it. I feel like there are a lot of developments that happen in the last third of the book that should probably have been pulled across the whole book because mm-hmm. it does feel like there are um, large elements that that are, are introduced really late. And that leads to some weird pacing where it feels mm-hmm. like, um, you know, oh, this is just coming in now. Like we leave Jivon, you know, we've got him in his with his brother and all that, and then it's like very late he comes back in with this one tidbit of information about the prophet and the prophet story himself. We see the town, but the 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 story, the whole airport story, kind of comes in late. So there, there's some yeah. things about that that I that I at the time I thought, well, this is weird that this is suddenly turning this way. But now that I've seen the whole story, I think maybe that's just because that she wanted that that moment, and so the whole book gets distorted a little bit because of that moment and and like I said, I really enjoyed i I actually really enjoyed this book, but i I certainly could make a list of things that that aren't that bug me about it
2: yeah i mean i'm glad I read it, and I really enjoyed so much of the language and so many of the descriptions but then, you know one of the things that was driving me nuts throughout was you know describing you know well here's Kirsten and here's Saeed and here's the conductor and here's the oboe and no, they know their names. Just use their names. And I realized that part of Oh, we don't have that... names anymore. There's been an apocalypse.
4: <laughs> Everything
2: has changed. <laughs> well, <I laughs> Magazines realized, have disappeared. I realized that was basically just an excuse to always use the, the term the prophet instead of ever having to have a name. And, oh, we'll sort of obscure it a little bit by other people not using names. And it's like, no, no, none of that was a surprise. Uh, I I would have been more interested in seeing how this little boy became the prophet. You know, I want to see a little bit more than just that little tiny thing you get at the airport.
3: Elizabeth was the most frustrating character for me because she basically exists to be described by everybody else.
2: As insane.
3: I know. And (laughs) well, well, this is the thing she gets described as being fragile, as being impulsive, as being driven by fear, as turning into some sort of blind religious fanatic. And all through the airport part, they're laying down the fact that this poor kid is isolated by his nut bar mother and has gotten a little weird and funny himself. And I thought, why don't we get some of her perspective on all of this, too? Because... Yeah. She was remember. She was flying back for the funeral of her ex husband and her child's father. The kid had a strained relationship th- with with the father to begin with, so he was clearly not in a good place. And that's given no quarter whatsoever in the book. That yeah. you have this gr- this grieving woman and this grieving child trapped in the middle of nowhere during during an extinction event, and she doesn't. And you know, in the in the Miranda segments, she comes off as not having a whole lot in the way of coping skills. But we don't ever find out why, and we don't ever find out what she's thinking. We just get everybody else's pictures of her. Yeah. I, I found yeah. that to be kind of mean and unnecessary, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Like,
1: and her real transformation oh, happens completely off screen, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Right. She leaves well, the airport, and it's like, well, suffice it to say, they spend a lot of time walking around, and her son became a crazy prophet.
3: Yep, and she was <laughs> fine with it, you know. And it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not asking that we get basically like Bates Motel flu edition, where you know, mother must, mother must never know, but, um. I feel like we should, we need to know more about her.
2: Arthur is like this cipher through the whole book. And I, I mean, it's it's sort of designed to, you know, I mean, because we keep coming back to him and coming back to stories about him. and And so I guess we're supposed to learn and figure out who he was and why everyone is so interested in him. And I never did figure out why everyone was so interested in him. I didn't really learn anything about him except for the fact that he was an actor who married three women, had a child, and died on stage. And nothing so from else From a little happens. town in Canada, little town in Vancouver Island. And
3: wrote letters to a girl back home who decided to exploit him and publish a book.
2: Who we never hear anything really about. We never really understand why anyone else married him. We sort of get why Miranda marries him. But we don't really know anything else about the other women. We don't know anything about the relationship with him and the child. And and I mean, there's so many interesting stories here that are just left behind, literally.
3: It was still a beautiful read. She's oh, it got was. a lovely command of language. I I'm really glad I read it.
1: I think that's the strength of it is I, I, I like um, a lot of the images, a lot of the individual scenes, the writing is beautiful yes. and that's why I can forgive a lot of those, you know, eyebrow raising moments where I, where I think I'm not sure this holds together as a, a, a posit on what an apocalypse might be like, because I do appreciate uh, the ride and the artistry and some of the scenes in specific that are very vivid even now in my mind. Scott, how you doing out there? Got to check in back with you. You've been silent <laughs> as everybody's been beating up. your favorite book of 2014
0: but that's that's fine i mean uh, different people get the the beauty of literature is that different people get different things out of it and if uh those people who disagree with me are wrong that's fine (laughs) 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 obviously i'm kidding but uh yeah i mean i think that the 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 storytelling well not the storytelling but the the prose and her ability as a writer to create these scenes is what made it the best book that I read last year. Uh, now, if I was judging it as a science fiction novel, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> it is a bad science fiction novel, uh, whereas Slow Apocalypse is a good science fiction novel. If I'm judging it as a novel, I think it's a great novel, and Slow Apocalypse is a bad novel. <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll say it had some of the
2: most beautiful language and beautiful descriptions I've read in the last three or four years. So I'm really glad I read it but but it was very frustrating.
3: Oh, I highlighted this. Arthur lives in a permanent state of disorientation like a low-grade fever, the question hanging over everything being, how did I get from there to here? So what I wonder is if the vagueness that describes him is is basically supposed to be a stand-in for his mental state and that's and that's the parallel we're supposed to draw is this is a guy who's disconnected from the world around him, and so we don't ever really get a feeling for who he is because he's almost literally not there even when he is there.
1: I think I think you could argue he is the connection point and that's why he exists and that that's he, he's the he's the you see him through the uh you know, what's left behind by the connections and, yeah. and not as a not as an actual person. It's so he is he's famous.
0: Just because he's famous, right? He's he's yeah. he's not like a great actor. He's good looking enough. I think he's a movie star, but we we don't really get much not
4: information about the movies he's a star from, right?
1: No, or he's in, he headlined a
4: movie or two. Yeah, and yeah. then he, mm-hmm. he kind of.
1: I get the impression he's a, hey, like he's a he's
4: kind of a hey, it's that guy. Like how he's like, Christian
3: Slater. How could
4: yes. be more famous than a hey, it's that guy? If any girl who dates him gets paparazzi,
3: he's Christian Slater. He had like three hits, and then he had his cuffs and went down. Now he's no, doing no, Shakespeare. It, he's
4: way more famous than that. Any girl
2: who <laughs> dates him gets barraged with paparazzi. Well, uh, that's there, that's there true. Are, there are books, you know, coming out about his his letters, uh, yeah. and you know, again, that's I would I would huge. question that. But. And the thing the thing that struck me about that whole part of the plot was. Um, Every time I saw Elizabeth and Tyler, I thought Elizabeth Taylor, and then I thought Richard Burton, (laughs) and then I thought Burton and Taylor, and I thought about the paparazzi and the crazy, you know, all the things around Burton and Taylor and all, because I read a Richard Burton biography that's really good by Melvin Bragg. Anyway, that's what (laughs) popped into my head. And I thought, we have no basis for that level of fame for this guy. You know, who, I mean, even, even the most shallow giant superstar has some kind of charisma because they wouldn't become giant super movie stars without it. So
3: this is another parallel to William Gibson, who's also obsessed with celebrity.
2: There you go. I
4: sort of did like the scenes where the kids were like the kids in Thunderdome, not understanding anything. Um, Or to quote the book itself, you see the way their eyes glaze over when anyone talks to them about antibiotics or engines. It's science fiction to them. Uh, That's an interesting idea, but it does not at all hold up with the other scenes of kids desperately reading children uh, celebrity gossip magazines and comic books. (laughs) Like, you can't have kids goggle-eyed at the idea of electric lights and also reading magazines that show electric lights. Those two Mm. things don't go together. All right. Also, I think... And I might be imagining this, but I think there's a weird strain of ludditism in this book.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah, I'll go with that. I I agree. There's the scene where for no reason there's a rant about people who use text speak. Mm -hmm. Because what? It would have taken too much time and effort to punch in an extra three letters and just say thanks? (laughs) And I don't think it's a coincidence that Tyler is always playing his video game machine. And then it goes away and then he becomes the evil prophet. He's
2: inconsolable. (laughs) I don't think that's a coincidence. And I think it's weird. And he's more upset about the video game than his father.
3: Yeah. Mm -hmm. See, we're all disconnected from the world, man. Well, the game has been there and his dad is not. So you can look at it that way.
4: Like there's an apocalypse and suddenly everybody stops caring about video games and texting and Fancy shoes, you guys. Yeah, we Everybody's... just have
1: music and uh, Shakespeare, and just and
4: Shakespeare. Stuff. By the way, not anything from the last four hundred years. <laughs> just Shakespeare. Yeah.
3: Well, the David Mamet plays—they get run out of town really fast for those. Oh,
2: you, bur- you burn those for fuel. They were used for fuel. These <laughs> trees were keeping. <laughs> <laughs> trees are important. Save the trees, um, Glen, Glen Ross. Goodbye.
1: Again, it's not like because st- again, that's that's the moment where I think where I think she thinks this is the road, and they burned all the trees, and there's nothing left. But there are forests full of trees so it's not the i road. think
3: this is the this is the harshest group of critics i've seen on station <laughs> 11 and he, and here is my theory as to why is because we have all read a lot of apocalyptic novels <laughs> and i think at this point like the the it has to pass a number of sniff tests. for. Us.
0: This is not a science fiction novel. No. And if you treat it like a science fiction novel, we can spend it, 40 it minutes fail pointing out all the things that are wrong about it.
4: This is not me nitpicking. This is me describing things that took me out of the book because the author could not be bothered to think through the apocalypse story she wanted to tell. She wanted, to tell. She wanted a Thunderdome scene where kids go, tell us about what it was like to have air conditioning. But she also <laughs> wants a story where people read gossip magazines after the apocalypse and the, they don't go together and the author makes no attempt to make them go together
1: what else do you have on your list <laughs> oh
4: uh the rest is actually nitpicking like, okay. <laughs> like so you drove your motorcycle until it stopped working and then you gave up you know you could put a diesel engine in there and put vegetable oil in i totally could not do that <laughs> if you were given 20 years and free ri- books rain are of available libraries do you think read. you could figure it
0: out I I don't think I would try.
3: I'm pretty sure I'm going to be the person who blows off her fingers in a really dumb accident like two weeks in. That's yeah. assuming I'm not there used There are no control.
0: zombies in this apocalypse. This
3: is <laughs> the thing. Or, it's again, would you
4: just end up making tents out of branches you brought in from the forest and living in a, an airport for the rest of your life?
1: I, I want to point out there's enough canned food and other goods to fulfill modern society. And now 99% of those people are not consuming anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So – The supermarket of the world is open. I think the people who survive have got a lot of books and a lot of food and a lot of stuff. And again, when when item one breaks, go to item two because there's Walmart's got 500 of them.
3: I think the people who wrote and read this book really have no... Like, they read books that usually have pictures of, like, pigeon-toed girls and Macintoshes on the cover and are about (laughs) dating and whatnot. And so... They're Scott,
1: not basically the coats,
3: yes. <laughs> Burn, and so oh. they're not really. Again, they're not like. So sad. <laughs> I, I'm reasonably sure that if the if 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 the extinction event were to hit, you all would be fine. I mean, we've established that I'm going to blow off my fingers and probably end up in some horrible camp. But um,
2: I'd totally be dead. This, the Syracuse compound is is welcoming.
3: Isn't it like three thousand miles away?
2: No, that's, that's the true. problem, but you yeah. can you can you can get a hot air balloon and go there. there
1: probably. See,
3: I can't just caravan with you guys. Wait, I can't just caravan with. Are you are you planning on sticking it out in in Mill Valley? There?
4: <laughs> yeah, possibly, it's defensible after the apocalypse. Everyone will travel by hot
3: air balloon. So mm-hmm. yeah. Oh my god, that'd be the best thing. But the point is, is I don't think anybody who wrote or read this book has the. Extensive backing <laughs> in 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 apocalyptic um, reality so checks th- th- that th- we th- do. There's I two really there's two arguments don't. here, and, and
1: and I totally agree with Scott that as a novel this worked for me, and as science fiction it is a complete failure. Um, I, I think though, and Monty, you can be my reality check on this. I think the argument is. You're gonna write a book set in an apocalypse. You gotta. There is a level of work you probably need to do yeah. to have your story make sense, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. can't. And and it shows a fundamental lack of respect for the reader and and their um and for world building. If you just kind of wave it off and say, "Look, you know, it's a bunch of different apocalypses." Suffice it to say, there's an apocalypse. Let me tell you my story, and that. You know, you can write a beautiful book that people like, but it will frustrate a lot of readers because you didn't make enough effort to have your story make sense. I wouldn't mind it if it were if the
4: book started with hand-waving, but if you have scenes before and after the apocalypse and there's no attempt to get from one to the other, then for me, no matter how nice individual scenes are, the whole thing, like I say, just, just feels, feels lazy. like
2: really – lazy. Right. For me, it's not that it doesn't work as a science fiction novel. I didn't think it worked as a novel. I think it works as some really beautiful character sketches and some really beautiful poetry. And there's so much granular detail about some things and so much hand wavium about so much else. It's like if you're going to do, you know, go with the hand wavium or go with the granular, because if you just kind of blend it as it comes to you, it's like it's like the Twilight Zone episode Midnight Sun, where you know, there's no real explanation as to why everything is getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter, and, hotter, and then it turns out, oh, it's all in in the girl's mind because it's actually Because the,
3: everything's getting colder. And it's
2: colder. everything's getting colder. Wasn't the Earth coming closer to the sun? That was the idea, but it's actually been blown out of out of the sun's orbit yeah. and it's going away. And there's there's no real attempt to make that even remotely plausible, but the story works because you just go with it. But this had so many little details and, oh, this is, this is exactly what would happen here. And this is what would happen here that when they didn't connect, it just, it took me out of it completely.
3: Again, it's a beautiful read. I don't think it's an apocalypse genre read. I think it's a. I think it's the kind of thing where you hand it to your your, your friends who are who, who like like literature and don't like sci
1: fi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that would be a title suggested, Lisa. Except I don't know how I would write it. The li- literature. <laughs> literature.
3: <laughs> no, because I have a bunch of girlfriends who who are seriously like eat, pray, love types, and um, no, and they're and they're great people. Don't get me wrong, but you know, like they like eat. Pre- <laughs> Spoke to me, and then they were like, "Station Love was the best book of the year." And it's so rare that we Again, like the Scott. same books. I was all, "That's true."
0: <laughs> I did read Eat, Pray, Love, and I did not like it. So this is Eat, Pray, Love, Die,
1: Survive. <laughs> Let's take another break. I just want to remind you, this is not even a sponsor. I'm the sponsor here. Did you know that the Incomparable does other podcasts? We do. In case you didn't know, go to TheIncomparable.com and you'll see we have Tim Goodman's TV Talk Machine where I talk to the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic every week about what's on TV. We have the TV podcast where we recap episodes of recently aired shows currently covering The Flash. We have Random Trek where Scott McNulty talks about Star Trek, a random episode with a non-random guest every week. Total Party Kill is every other week where we play Dungeons & Dragons. There's a new story starting next week. The Incomparable Radio Theater will be coming back in a few months. You can subscribe to it now. Philip Michaels and Lisa Schmeiser ruin the movies. They ruin a movie they haven't even seen, and it's very funny. And also coming back for a new season, not playing with Lex Friedman and Dan Morin. So many podcasts. There are more on the way. So check it out. If you like this podcast, give us a try. TheIncomparable.com. There's iTunes links and feed links there, so you can subscribe to some other shows that i think you'll like we need to talk at least a little bit about the peripheral and slow apocalypse because
3: i stayed up till 12 30 last night reading that <laughs> damn book so i could finish it oh my yeah. god oh
1: what a piece it's of a crap,
4: crap. <laughs> <laughs> This one, I kind of liked its weird
0: ambition.
3: Yeah. Mm.
4: It's got an idea I liked. Y- yeah. I, don't <laughs> like,
0: I don't like William Gibson, so I should, I should point that out. I've never liked any of his books. And this wow. continues his streak. I uh, did not
3: know that about you. I
1: go hot and cold on him. So in the peripheral, peripheral so william Gibson uh this is a a book in uh not in any universe that he's written in before he tends to write trilogies of things. this is not any of the any of his trilogies. maybe we'll see books in this universe again, maybe we won't. I like William Gibson. I loved his most recent trilogy and I loved his first trilogy that made him, him famous. Um, this book is fascinating um uh, the, the, <laughs> the 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 plot the plot of it is essentially this is the peripheral the, the plot is essentially that there is a uh so spoilers for the peripheral (laughs) (laughs) the the plot is basically there is a post-apocalypse world uh, where there are these people in london and there aren't very many people left and we don't really know a lot about what happened it's called the jackpot but something happened and there are not many people left but they have super high nanotechnology so hey an apocalypse happened but All of society didn't fall apart. There's all this super high technology. They have the ability to communicate back in time to before the apocalypse, sort of as the apocalypse is starting to happen. And... Uh, And in a strange set of events, the the, the past they're communicating with uh, is immediately once you communicate with it, it branches off. You can't change the future by communicating with the past, but you can communicate with this alternate past that you've created by communicating with them. But it's Mm -hmm. not actually the past, right? Well, it starts as
0: the past. It's
3: not your past. It turns into someone else's past the minute that you begin to monkey with affairs.
0: I read this to be – and maybe I I – Took this wrong, but they're communicating with some Chinese server. Yeah, right. Well, that's yeah. the means by which they're doing it.
3: Yeah, yeah. Only, only a Chinese web server would send you 70 years into the past, so you could use desperate, methed-out hillbillies to do your video game labor for you. The,
1: the idea is it's a it's a quantum computer, and it's unlocked the ability to dial into the past. But but just the the standard kind of mini worlds idea. Once you uh, interfere with the past, it's not your past anymore. You've branched it off, and so you end up. With in, so in this book in the first hundred pages it is dense and weird and it is it is uh, I almost gave up about five times it's unclear for a long time what these two time frames are and how they if they have anything in common with one another and then there is a moment. Uh, And I I think I saw other people commenting on this. There is a moment, I don't know how many pages into it, where it, it suddenly becomes very clear after all of this confusion about what's actually going on. And it's a really nice moment, I thought. I was like, oh, okay. It's like an alternate future. And these people are like... It's like Bitcoin mining, except it's like a world. They're like, yeah, we just strip mine your world for information and labor, mm-hmm. and we don't really care about it because we're uptime here doing yes. our own thing. And the, and and that was really interesting. And some of the VR stuff with the 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 woman Flynn, who's who's there, 3D printing things, and they got drones everywhere, and they and they get this huge influx of money thanks to the people in the future, and they start like buying stuff, and there's like c- some crazy tech there, but they're also on the precipice of an apocalypse that was kind of interesting the future the far future people are really weird and some very strange things going on up there i thought that was kind of interesting so there there the so so for me the first part was a slog then there was mm-hmm. a kind of a moment of clarity that was like, oh, that was really clever, William Gibson. I see what you did there. Then there's some really interesting Golf stuff top. that is like, well, yeah, yeah, bravo. Um, <laughs> and, then, and, and then and then the individual worlds are kind of interesting how they interact. The the, the peripheral is a, uh, a, a like a, a brainless body that you can ride in uh, using VR, which felt to me kind of like the one kind of piece of wink-wink <laughs> uh, technology that's like, yeah, this totally works. We got this. Working in the future, um, that that but was weird. But it allows the people from the past to sort of see the present, or the f- whatever the people from the future <laughs> to see the further future. Tenses are difficult. You guys are following this, with right? Time if you
4: haven't read the book. You you have no problem. You totally I mean, totally makes on. sense. Basically,
3: you, what happens is people from the from the future use future. people from the from the far from seventy years into the future use people from the past as a way for capital and virtual and virtual labor. Yeah. Um, the book chronicles the gradual disintegration of the world as we know it today, owing to a multitude of factors, including environmental collapse, radical economic inequality, and um, epidemics.
0: All the poor people die, basically. Hence the jackpot. The jack- yeah, yeah, exactly. The jackpot.
3: And and the people in the future, there's a tiny bunch of them. It's now a bunch of it's now a bunch of kleptocracies or oligarchies. So it's a bunch of corporate nation states, not unlike what you see in Neil Stephenson's The Diamond Age,
1: a book that I liked a lot, which is much better. <laughs> yes.
3: And the thing is, is this is this is such a classically Gibsonian book in so many ways because there's a whole lot about how nature has been quietly, um, you know. Destroyed And now people fetishize a lot of consumer objects that take clear inspiration from nature, like the squid suits, which are this kind of camouflage. Or they talk about how in the future people have um, earth sets, honey, uh, beeswax, uh, candles, despite bees being completely extinct. And... Um, Back breeding thylacines and other extinct animals is now a status symbol. Which there's an is, awesome
1: replicator that can make any kind of alcoholic beverage ever, except the guy who's an alcoholic is locked out of it and can't use.
3: Biologically it. speaking, I mean. The, oh, the
1: irony!
3: <laughs> but the thing is, is this is such a Gibson novel in that there's this extreme fetishization of material culture, where people, you know, spend a lot of time noticing how awesome upholstery is in luxury cars. Yes. And oh, there's yeah. also his touching belief that vast amounts of money can can make any problem go away ever, and not creating a cat and not create a cascade of future problems and i don't
1: i I don't know if he believes that i i kind of feel like um
3: i feel like the end of the book is kind of setting us up for two more where it turns out this radical experiment and in averting the uh the jackpot is going to backfire horribly
4: yeah one part i really liked right towards the end of the book was when they were describing what the bad person had done uh, like screwing around with alternate Timelines, which they're called stubs. He would apparently turn them into giant gladiatorial combat worlds <laughs> and yeah. just evolve super weapons out of them. Th- that reminds me of what happens in our stub at the end of the book, where they're like, "So everything's fine now that we've got complete control of your economy and
1: your billionaires. We're pretty sure we've uh, locked everything down. And if not, then you know it's all an experiment to them because it can't yeah. affect their life." Yeah. And there's this, you feel like maybe there's a bond there, but at the same time, it's like, well, if this doesn't work, you guys have to live with it, not yeah. us.
3: But Gibson's always been big into the themes of corruption of money and unchecked sure. power, because, you know, you've got the, because that's the whole point to Neuromancers. You've got that the Tessier Ashpool people who go crazy and build satellites, and eventually their AIs go sentient and build a whole other alternate universe. And then that pops up again in the Different Light trilogy. Correct me if I'm wrong, that's also like the, the, Crazy rich people are insulated from consequences and subsequently become crazier. Like that's the thing that pops up in the Big Ant trilogy, too. So this is this is Gibson's big theme. This is
1: what Gibson does. They're the people with the money. There's big money and there's big technology. And they have this and they have this corrupt and they have this corrupting effect. And in fact, in the in the stub in this, you have, you know, they they lay the money down to they buy the governor. They I mean, they they. Um, they they are able with their money to completely subvert everything that's going on here. And I, I don't think that necessarily what he's trying to – his message is not, yay, money fixes everything. It's more like, m- see, money can do anything and it generally does bad things.
3: It's unchecked. Right. and it's <laughs>
1: Money is good but also bad. It's powerful.
3: Money makes things easy seems to be this. It's, yeah. like fire. it's hmm. very seductive.
0: And chapters are short in the future, yes oh, well, just, this
1: is what Gibson does i mean his his having his his chapters are all very short, and he cycles between the different, characters. The, the, different the different points of views and you 're always moving on to the next. The the next chapter.
3: I feel like that gives it a false sense of urgency because yeah, I, I feel like I feel like it's I feel like it's watch the hand watch the hand because otherwise you're like oh this is basically a story that takes place over five days or whatever. Well, it's fast paced,
1: right? Except yeah. then you realize that you're flipping between a guy walking and another guy walking, and then you're back to the first guy walking. <laughs> yeah. it's like, that's not as he paced there. That's not fast. That's just flipping.
4: His characters all have really short lines. Yeah. Yes and he tends to name yeah and he has really short descriptive sentences there's really connor sometimes. and
3: carlos and flynn, flynn and wilf yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah flynn and wilf and i, I and Burton. and I, ugh. I really liked Connor, who is the guy who has – who spends all of his time in Pavel, the handsome peripheral.
1: Um, right, because he's he's a veteran he's, and he's lost yeah. his limbs and he, he, he can use that peripheral and he's got all his arms and legs in it.
3: And that and reminds awesome. me of like a bunch of different <laughs> short stories in the science fiction golden or back in the 70s where the idea sure. was that – you know, and actually it reminds me a bit of Peter Watt's um, novel Starfish where the premise of that was only mentally ill people were suited for life – deep, deep, deep undersea because they responded or reacted differently to deep pressure conditions than mentally healthy people did. And so there's always been kind of this fascination in sci-fi with, well, what do we do with people who are differently abled? Surely there's an environment where they can thrive. And Gibson's making the argument that, well, with technology, you can do anything. <laughs> so this this book feels
1: really overstuffed to me. I think yes. the – this is an understatement probably – I think the stub idea alone is a novel. And then, but it's called the peripheral, and and part way through you realize, okay, well, it's about basically like virtual bodies, or essentially that that you can be in another body, and and that sounds like the subject of a whole novel too. But instead, uh, n- not only do you have those together, which seems like there's just too much. It's like Spider-Man villains. You don't need three of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, then on top of it, it is. Your William Gibson plot, and I say this as somebody who loves William Gibson. You, j- it ends up becoming about money and crime and uh, gunfights. It's also about
4: quadcopters and and, yeah. and drones.
1: In this case, that's a little that's a little new variety. Is also there are drones here, and it just, it's just it's over it's overstuffed to me. So uh, so Scott and and then and we'll then we'll go to Monty Scott. You don't like Gibson? Uh, any any particular uh, impressions about this one? Since we forced you to read it. I <laughs> would force
0: me. I could have stopped
1: at any time, you and could I was tempted have.
0: to stop many times, <laughs> but I did not. I thought. I mean, you. It has a lot of great ideas in it. I just find. I mean, it's a stylistic thing. I find Gibson's writing to be annoying. Ah. I love his.
1: I love his style. I love his style. So that that one, we will disagree on. that. We, we can't it's okay do, I mean, that you're wrong on that one, Scott. It's okay. I, I understand,
0: and I know. I mean, he people, lots of people love him. He's just not my cup of tea. Uh, and I kind of felt like the end of it was like I went through all of this, and this is the whole point. The end. I
1: I, I felt like I missed the end. I'm like, what, what? That's it. It's
0: over. Wait,
3: When did she become pregnant? What happened? Here? I
1: couldn't even tell. I flipped, and it's, and then Kindle brings up the little box. It's like, well, that's the end. How do you rate? I'm like, what? That's <laughs> the end. By this point, you're turning pages so fast. You're like, all right, that's a chapter. That's a chapter. All right. Go. Yeah. Go, yeah. go wait what yeah yeah and, and, and that was really frustrating I was saying to Lauren after I read it I was like I was kind of enjoying it I finally got in a groove with it where I was like oh okay we got the two different worlds and it's and it's building to a climax and all that and then I was like that's it and it's and it, it, it is a sort of sudden disappointing ending if he is planning more books in this world then that that actually kind of he he's never really done the continuing story thing it tends to be a, an oblique take in the same world the next time and if he does that then so be it but it was a it, the end was you know not it was yeah it was just abrupt and perfunctory i guess but it was better written than Slow Apocalypse. So
0: Oh God. <laughs> <Burn>. It's not
1: <laughs> Well, I, I I read I would argue um that I read Gibson I think I, I think I read Gibson primarily for the style and yeah. and I always love his style and then there are times when I mean and it's it's like a fever dream sometimes in fact the first hundred pages of this book it really was like a fever dream I, I was worried that yeah. I was I had yeah. a fever and was completely confused <laughs> and lost but when he when he hits it when he gets those points and they're like really trenchant they're really on point about like what life is like right now and he's using it to to um, make you think about possible technical implications of present technology in the future and and an interesting you know macguffin plot to draw you along then you then he nails it and and the last trilogy that he did that that started with pattern recognition he nailed it those are pattern recognition might have become my favorite william gibson book when he doesn't nail it like in the virtual light trilogy the bridge trilogy and, and and in this book um, I, I appreciate his writing, but I start to see the seams of he's pouring a bunch of this stuff in there and stirring it around. And sometimes what you get out is, is, uh, is a mess. And this was, this was more of a mess to me. You There's know.
3: a William Gibson playbook that I feel like he plays by where, do I have a theme that talks about how technological disintermediation is inherently dehumanized to everyone who participates? <laughs> Check. Check. Do I want to fetishize a luxury brand name? Mm-hmm. Like. Hermès? Check. While,
1: while commenting on the uh, on the questions of why one might fetishize such a brand. Do I Check. do I
3: want to do I imagine do I want to imagine what life is like for the uneducated poor in future world? Check. Check. Um you know, <laughs> do I want to exoticize some somebody who's not Anglo and and therefore introduce the exotic Russian culture, the exotic Japanese culture or whatever? Check. There are a lot of leitmotifs that go from trilogy to trilogy to trilogy and um i found this book to be a big slog and so frankly for me like half the enjoyment was like yep i remember seeing that in um um mona lisa overdrive yep i remember that from <laughs> mona lisa Overdrive. Yeah, i yeah. remember that from pattern recognition i remember
0: <laughs> a william gibson bingo card uh,
3: yeah, yeah it was it was like yeah William dude, Gibson you, drinking you could, game you could do a william gibson you could plausibly do a william gibson drinking uh bingo card for sure for sure um and like Jason, I found the ending to be really abrupt and jarring because all of a sudden Flynn is married and pregnant and is apparently okay with being Everybody's an Appalachian. Happy. Well, That's except Nice police officer, yay! Except that she's turned a little more sophisticated because now she's checking in weekly with the future to, to shape and she's on a first name basis with the president and... My bet is that either her or one of her descendants ends up in some sort of you know oh sure things have happened but uh, yeah, hefty Mart COO for life Flynn will be blah 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 um, you know the same way that there there were there are always hooks between the trilogies where there's some offhanded mention of how somebody's uh, in a radically different position than they were a book ago but um, there were things I liked about it because I I did like. Um, I did like he seems to be getting a little. He seems to be getting a sense of humor in his old age. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, Clovis and Connor, for example, are both incredibly funny characters for him, um, and I enjoyed the little bits of levity they provided because this is not a book that's big on having a sense of humor. No. Um, that said, I was really disappointed how there's a couple different um, parts of the book where it's like, "But science will help us out. But science will advance despite the fact that eighty percent of the world population is dying off." And it's kind of almost the opposite of the Station yeah. 11 problem, where in Station 11 like, everyone goes back to treating books like holy sacred objects to be kept by monks, too. Scientists, hmm. they managed to survive everything, and now they're bringing this <laughs> a better world.
4: Is there nothing <laughs> they can't do? That's exactly. true. I don't b- buy that an apocalypse kills all technology, but I don't know that I buy that it immediately creates nanotechnology.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's the apocalypse kills it well off the
3: inconvenient poor, and that's all it does is it's like, oh, those poor people. or well, oh that's
0: why it's a jackpot, man. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Oh, no and the thing that also bugs me about about this it is- Okay, first of all, the thing I like is you're not really quite sure what happened to the US because the only mention made is Flynn is like, I guess the US is like Connor only without a sense of humor and you're like, oh, it's a mercenary nation state, I don't know. But what I've always found kind of problematic is is like it's like Africa and South the continents of Africa and South America never ever exist in his books. Like you you never meet people from there. There's there's no culture there. There's no his his characters never travel there.
1: Well, the, there is that joke in this that the yeah. that the Milagros Cold Iron is mm-hmm. based in Costa Rica or something yeah. like that. But that's it. It's just kind of a joke or Columbia.
3: And Cold Iron was a misspelling of Calderon. Yeah. So they even got that wrong. Yeah. it's. I mean, I love Gibson. I love Gibson. There's a lot of love about him. But this book was just so... I was like, eh, I'm not sure I'm picking up your song. A-
1: after I turned the corner with that moment of the, of the two different futures, I was like, oh, okay. And then I was able to appreciate on a level. And then the ending was disappointing. So... Yeah, I found it. I I had a moment where I thought, oh my God, I think I'm going to have to just give up on a William Gibson novel, which I've never done before. And I didn't do that. And I found something that I liked about it. I like the dread of the jackpot, how how they mention the jackpot to Flynn and she's like, you know, it's, it's bad. And we're like, oh geez, this is really bad. And it goes a long time where you're trying to get information about what exactly did happen what is he not telling us about this future and how it came to be unfortunately when it is revealed it's kind of abrupt and not that interesting (laughs) and that's like okay well that was a letdown and then the only other plot twist that I thought was kind of clever and yet at the same time felt almost um, like he was trying too hard is that there's a character in the future who's very very old who is revealed to be Mm -hmm. in the present as well but it's a transgender character so no. it's a i've thrown you off the scent it's a uh, man in the present but well, a woman in the future
3: it's kind of like a crying game twist again you know? it yeah. didn't
1: it didn't feel like it was actually very well done it was more yeah, I, I, I didn't, I didn't think it did a good job with that. Either. I appreciated that twist because I was spending a lot of time because
4: obviously there's going to be some connection right. between the Law two times. of economy yeah. of characters again, right. like in Station <laughs> Eleven. I'm <laughs> going, who's the prophet going to be? Well, probably this kid. Right. That who's was Cold easy? Iron
1: going to or uh, yeah. uh, yeah. Lobi
4: are going to be? Like, right, it's got to be somebody. Cl- clearly, these two timelines are, time are going to have somebody in common. What's it going to be? Oh, that guy, and nothing really. Yeah. It doesn't even matter. Well, all right, you got me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: kind of pointless, but good one. You got good me. on you. Although there, there's, there's a nice moment where, where they reveal that they know to the, yeah. to the, uh, to the character to, in to, question, to the, the, the man in the present that, the, that in the future. Uh, he becomes a woman and that's a there is a nice scene where it's like i've never told anybody that how could you know that and they're like well <laughs> stubs servers anyway um but that that's a kind of a nice thing it's like the future knows all your secrets <laughs> yeah but, <laughs> uh, but i yeah. just
4: assumed this stub was going to be important like well you see flynn you caused the jackpot <laughs> <laughs> da, da, da. Well, apparently not no uh my take on the book it felt very much to me like a gibsonized version of neil stevenson's anathem Huh. Yeah. Possibly just because Anathem also has that moment in the middle of it. Where Where you figure it out. Where you go, (laughs) here's what's happening. And you go, oh, Oh, that's neat. That's what this book is about. That moment felt the same in both books. And everything else that's Neil Stephenson-y in the one book has been replaced by William Gibson-y stuff in Mm -hmm. this book. Mm-hmm. It was like, instead of monks doing math, like it's philosophy,
1: it's we, quadcopters, we quadcopters and, and, and nanotechnology. And virtual bodies. Yeah,
4: <laughs> exactly. I felt like the core ideas of the book, there were enough of those and they were complicated enough that he didn't need to put in nonsense like this artist skins herself every few years.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes.
4: And oh, this person okay. has animated tattoos that are apparently sentient well, i found and, the core murder mystery of this also completely not compelling right and just with, it's not and
3: unnecessary yeah, yeah. well and,
4: gibson apparently felt the same because it didn't really get resolved <laughs> no. no
3: i felt like he was taking the piss out of steampunk with the character ash yeah because he talks a lot about our excessive fetishization of, of baroque technology and how she reappropriates it for that world and i was like okay this is him basically putting down his foot and saying he doesn't like steampunk he wrote
1: the difference engine how dare he there were there was a puncturing I don't know if it was about steampunk but there was a puncturing of kind of pretentiousness uh in, in that of of art and artists in the future that I, I I was amused by that was actually one of the things that I thought was funny in this but but yeah I'm I'm with I'm with Monty that that there yeah again I it just feels overstuffed like I, I feel like he's got too many things on the checklist here and as a result the book is not really ever sure what it's what it wants to be and uh, his more successful books are sort of about a thing and then have interesting coloring around yeah. the edges. Y- and this is more like, no, no, it's about uh, two different futures and uh, and time travel of a sort. And I mean, it's just like pile them all in there and nanotechnology and drones. And it's just I, I, it's like it feels like it's too much.
4: Yeah. Neuromancer and pattern recognition. The prose is streamlined. The plot is complicated but basically streamlined
3: and entertaining. Yeah.
4: yeah, and this has so much
1: stuff in it. His best books still have very simple plots. It's just the decoration on them that makes them seem twistier than they actually are. And and I like the decoration, so it's fine. And, and below it is just a film like a film noir plot. There's not a lot mm-hmm. to it. Uh this, yeah. This is like not not that it's more complicated. It's just kind of messier and 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 yeah, overstuffed.
3: I feel like there's a fine class rage. I feel like there's a fine raging class warrior in William Gibson that could come out if he would just give more full throat to it, because the way he talks about, because oh, yeah. because the way he talks about Burton and Connor, and um, and especially the way he begins to, and and especially the way that he points out that whatever wipes out the world's population isn't likely to be one thing; it's going to be a lot of things exacerbated by inequality and faulty infrastructure. I think this is a guy who who thinks long and hard and seriously about the warping effects of money and the way it warps people on on all ends. He just – it just gets buried under, ooh, it's an Hermes case. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I think, though, that's his – I think that's his shtick. I think he is not – he's the kind of person who writes these kind of uh, somewhat disconnected emotionally uh, commentaries on this rather than, you know, heating up and and making something that's a little more angry. That's just – that's Gibson.
3: People don't really get angry in his books, do they? They're confused or they're taken aback or they're (laughs) overwhelmed or or they're, they're even thrilled in a genteel way. But I can't remember anybody who's been genuinely lose their head furious. I think
4: Molly got angry, didn't she? Once maybe, maybe yeah. But by, but but by like Mona lot.
3: Lisa Overdrive, she was pretty calm. Yeah. All it's a lot. The time.
4: Of, it's a lot of kind of uh, at a remove emotionally. Yeah, and, and yeah. I did not find it surprising to learn that the going into an alternate past to mine it for resources concept was mm-hmm. taken from the story Bruce Mo- Sterling's
3: Mozart for Mirror Shades. <laughs> yeah,
4: Mozart in Mirror Shades by Ruth Sterling and Lewis Shiner. Uh,
3: I ha- I have that story,
4: except for Stevenson and Gibson. That's the most cyberpunk stuff you can put in one title and author
3: mirror yeah I have I have the cyber I have the cyberpunk anthology mirror shades where that book is featured yes indeed yeah. yes.
1: we um, we are desperately over time but I want I want those who read uh, John Varley's Slow Apocalypse tell me about it because um, I didn't read it
3: <laughs> so so the basic premise is that um, the zero petroleum event happens. An angry scientist invents a bacteria that somehow causes the the world's entire petroleum supply to lock up and Ooh. cause a series of earthquakes and implosions. and
1: It's Ice-9 on- it, ice for oil.
3: <laughs> yes. It is, yes. Yes, it is.
1: And with uh, a worse writer.
3: <laughs> mm.
1: Well, worse than, I mean, worse than Vonnegut. Is most I mean, writers that, that is uh, that is true? <laughs> Not so that bad of burn, Scott. So
3: basically, what happens is is Varley sets out the premise: the world has no oil, and the whole the whole book's themes can be f- summed up as one: if humanity, as you know it, were to collapse tomorrow, we'd all be we'd all be screwed. Two: when things turn when when things go bad, people will go bad. Three: it's great to be male. <laughs> <laughs> huh. And and f- and four: it helps if you hoard things. And five, in order to survive, in order to survive an apocalyptic event, you have to have advanced intel on on what's going to happen. Because basically, the protagonist is this out of work Hollywood screenwriter who gets a hot tip from a military guy he's been trying to talk up. And the guy, the military guy was like, yeah, look, the, 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 the the bug has already been spread in the Middle East. It's going to spread across the world. Military guy is literally shot and killed like two pages later because the powers that be are covering this up. This causes the protagonist to panic. Take all of their money out of the bank, max out his credit cards on, on on survivalist supplies, get his daughter's horses from their stable, and and try to ride this thing out into the Hollywood Hills until like a, a great until like a Richter nine earthquake hits Los Angeles. Um, one of his writer's assistants is raped by a gang of Hell's Angels, and they decide they have to head someplace else and start a new life as farmers. That is your book, mm. and um
1: sounds great
3: well the thing, is, <laughs> the thing is 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 barley is a super funny super entertaining writer and he's actually the kind of guy where if you were seriously stuck in an apocalypse you'd be like okay this is kind of the how-to manual i need step one stock up on legumes step two make sure you have spam <laughs> because it's got high fat and protein content step three do you have a way to filter water like it's it's i i get the feeling he spent a lot of time trawling prepper sites for this and um a lot of his later works have have basically had had a thin undercurrent of "Oh God, we're killing the planet." "Oh God, something awful is going to happen." Civilization, as we know it, is going to end soon. And so, I, I feel like this is him, you know, trying trying to like take a few deep breaths and write it all out and get it out of his system. Perhaps his therapist suggestion. But it is, like, literally the exact opposite of Station 11, where, oh, sure, bad things happened and children were amnesiac for a year, but Shakespeare survived. And in this one, it's like, well, a bunch of old men hobbyists are going to get steam trains working again so we can move food up and down the West Coast and... Uh... Oh, we work six days a week on a farm and we have to hoard water, but hey, we're alive and isn't that great? And we're back to using the post office and it's so romantic. And you're like, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I think I would have rather have gone in the shooting gallery after the earthquake or, or maybe killed in the Olympic Stadium bowl after the chlorine gas escaped or, or. <laughs> Cause I read it and I'm like, what the heck is going to happen next? And like something horrible would happen like two pages later. And then like, there's a reveal in one chapter that they've turned Alameda into a prison camp for refugees. And I'm all, wait, what?
1: <laughs> Scott, what, what's your, uh, Let what's your, see. what's your take on this one? <laughs>
0: uh well don't be in los angeles when the apocalypse happens is, is a big takeaway <laughs> <All right. laughs>
1: yeah. forever
0: maybe but yeah, yeah. yeah. well I, i've only been in los angeles briefly but i think i can get on board with that uh i mean he is really into uh detailing how one goes through an apocalypse mm-hmm. uh so if you're if you're into that Check it out. It's a quick read. Uh, Oh, yeah. Certainly keeps it going. Stuff happens. Bad stuff
1: happens.
3: Yeah. So much bad stuff happens.
1: Having heard your description of the the, uh, all oil turns to goo, um, I would mention uh, The Wind-Up Girl, which I have plugged many times by Paolo Bacigalupi. That Much is better. That is a, a story about a world where, where oil has run out. And, you know, they make it work. It's not great. And, you know, the seas have risen and they've got like genetically engineered elephants that crank turbines in order to generate power. But it's, you know, I, I, I feel like that's a... Uh that that's a nice story about what would happen. Our dependence on, on oil for for energy sources that uh it doesn't end in an apocalypse. It just ends in a kind of unpleasant future, but it's not it's not like the end of the world. How about a short story where it's about the, an Amish community?
4: They find out that the rest of the world ended and they're like, Oh, too bad for you guys, huh? Uh
1: it, well that's that's how the last policeman trilogy ends. Actually mm. oh, good. Mm-hmm. is in, yes. is in an Amish, an Amish community. F- family, mm-hmm. yeah. And they're, they're living their lives <laughs> until the world ends.
3: You know. One of my favorite post-apocalyptic details is how and why the last man they finally get to the African continent and find out that they're like, well, you know, the women are fine here. They didn't have any sort of social collapse because uh, they were already doing a lot of everything anyway. They they just kept on keeping on. <laughs> and I, I, I liked that a lot. <laughs> Because it was a nice way to tweak the uh, ethnocentrism of a lot of apocalyptic tales, which are, oh God, North America's in flames. All of the world must have gone down. And, you know, no, no, we were fine. We're fine. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing just (laughs) fine. We kept the poachers away from the lions. It's all cool. (laughs)
4: Hmm. Yeah. If you make your super bug work too quickly, no one's going to have time to fly to Africa to infect everyone.
1: That's true, Mm too. Yeah. Yeah. I was never clear in Station 11 where people just missed getting it at the beginning and so they never got it that didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me but again we're not going to talk anymore about (laughs) Station 11 no suffice it to say it is of a certain kind you you know by now whether you want to read this book or not if you if you haven't already read it and if you have you also know that (laughs) you can feel sense your regret or your delight (laughs) no matter what
2: that's right
1: all right. We've re- we've we've talked about many books. I'm not going to even ask you what you're reading because that was lots of books <laughs> and lots of time and it's a long book club. So I'm going to thank my guests for talking about many books with me. Scott McNulty, as always, a pleasure to have you on the book club. Uh, and it was a pleasure to be here. Lisa Schmeiser, thank you very much. It's always uh, a pleasure to explore the end of the world with you.
3: Thank you.
1: Monty Ashley, thank you for being here and making a list and checking it twice about things that are bothersome about the apocalypse thank you it was a pleasure having you and david lore thank you for reading one of the books
2: parting is such sweet sorrow even if i don't (laughs) care for shakespeare anymore
1: i was hoping for a quote from star trek voyager ah well
2: well i've got this whole uh, neelix's lungs script here
4: Mm, (laughs) good there's no point in having playwrights after the apocalypse
2: that's right Mm.
1: because it's all just shakespeare it's all shakespeare that's all All other books were burned for fuel in lieu of the forest and thanks to everybody out there for listening to The Uncomfortable. We'll see you next time.